0: Well, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. For the last time, Daniel chapter 3. I don't know about you guys, when you're reading through a book series or you're reading through a book or you're watching a TV show or you're watching a movie and you get towards the end, there's this sense of a a bittersweetness. Maybe it's a book series that you've read through that You've read, you know, books one through three, and as you're getting to book number four, and you know that this is the last book, as you get to the very end, you can feel uh, the the pages getting smaller and smaller in your right hand as you're flipping through it and reading, and you realize there's not much left in this story, and you just want to hang on. You want to figure out what happens at the end of the story, but you also don't want it to end. That's how I feel about Daniel chapter three. We know the ending of this story. We know how it unfolds. We know how it ends, And as I said last week, sometimes I wish that I didn't know how a story in the Bible ended. I wish that I could go back to when I didn't know and I read it for the very first time and I was just dumbfounded by God's amazing grace. Well, I want to pray this morning that as we dive into this text that is very familiar to us, that we would hear it as if we were hearing it for the very first time. And that as we finish chapter 3, we're only in chapter 3 in Daniel and I'm already feeling this sense of a bittersweet nature and nostalgia over leaving this book. I know we have a lot of chapters left for us, but this chapter has just been a gift from the Lord. I pray it's been a gift from the Lord for your soul. This season has been weird for many of us. You're going through trials. There's difficulties that all of you are experiencing to some degree or another. And I pray that Daniel chapter 3 would be a balm for your soul. So let's dive into it together. Daniel chapter three, I want to read starting in verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. And I want to read it and listen to it as if we were hearing it for the very first time. The scroll of Daniel is being opened before us and we're being told from the lips of God himself what he has done for his people. Daniel 3, verse 15. Now, Nebuchadnezzar says, if you are ready at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately at that very moment be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king. We are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and all their clothing. And they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men that we cast bound in the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and he responded and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out you servants of the most high God and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and they saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. In as much as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to a section of scripture that is very familiar to those of us in this room who have grown up in church, who have been around the word of God for much of their lives. And it's very easy in these moments to to feel that we know what this story is about, to to sense that there's not really much more that can be explained or understood about this passage of scripture. And, And yet we want to come anew and afresh to this passage, knowing there is so much more that we haven't seen. And knowing specifically that even the things that we already have seen, they are going to be applied in new, fresh ways today. Because you and your sovereignty had this text for this day, for this morning, for the specific trials that we are going through. Father, I pray that you would remind us of your sovereign hand in the midst of persecution. You remind us of one of the aspects of persecution, promoting praise as you protect us and you sovereignly care for us. But Father, more than anything, I pray that we would walk away with a very real sense that you are here. You are with us in the fire and that it is in the fire that you are with us. And if we want to flee from the fire, we flee from your presence. So, Father, teach us to... Kiss the wave, as Spurgeon said, that would throw us upon the rock of Christ. Whatever trial, whatever fiery furnace we may be going through, God, I pray that we would have a completely different perspective of what is actually taking place in and through the trial as we leave from here. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The book of Daniel is all about the sovereignty of God as we have seen. And so here yet again, we are going to see the sovereignty of God on display, but we're gonna see the sovereignty of God on display specifically in the reality of persecution. So three main realities of God's sovereignty in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of whatever you might be going through that would feel like a fiery furnace. We're not in a fiery furnace, but it might feel that way to you. So we will see three specific aspects this morning in chapter 3 of God's sovereignty in the midst of trials and persecution. Number one, God sovereignly permits persecution. God sovereignly allows it. He permits Persecution. It does not go unnoticed from him. In fact, it does not go uh, even apart from his allowance. He is behind it. He is allowing it. He is purposing it and he is ordaining it. This is in verses 19 through 23. After Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so bravely and courageously say, We trust God, do whatever you need to do, we trust God, we would think that in that moment our God would act to deliver then, open Nebuchadnezzar's eyes then but God says, I'm going to allow them to go into the fire. I'm going to allow them to go into the furnace. He will permit the persecution to continue. But it starts with Nebuchadnezzar being filled with wrath. At the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly angry. They're messing up his event to promote himself as this amazing king uh, who has been installed by the gods in Babylon. And honestly, if you think about Nebuchadnezzar at this point, he's filled with wrath. His facial expression is altered. He's so angry. If you think about his anger, this is just the perfect picture of a madman, a toxic madman. Think about it. He's saying in his mind, how dare you not love me based off of everything that I've given to you? I've given you a a place in my life. Uh, government. I've given you as court officials in my royal lineup, I've given you authority, I've given you food. I even allowed you to decide to eat something other than what you wanted to eat, uh, that I commanded you to eat. And Nebuchadnezzar says, how dare you not love me back for all that I've done for you? But time out, he's forgetting one other thing that he did for them, which was namely kidnap them, take them from their families and burn their houses down. This is the definition of a toxic man, a manipulative man who's saying, you should love me because of all the love that I've given to you. And he's forgetting all of the evil that he's done to these three individuals. Jeffrey King in his commentary on Daniel says, and then Nebuchadnezzar lost his temper. And this is always the mark of a little man. His furnace was hot, but he himself got hotter. And when a man gets full of fury, he gets full of folly. There is no fool on earth like a man who has lost his temper. And Nebuchadnezzar did a stupid thing. He ought to have cooled the furnace seven times less if he wanted to hurt them more. But instead of that, in his fury, he heated it up seven times. He says in the middle of verse 19, he gives orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. Seven times more. I don't think that there was a dial on the furnace that let's click it over to seven times hotter and that's just a number of perfection as hot as it can go. He's just saying crank up the heat as hot as it can go. 1,984 degrees is where gold melts and remember this furnace is probably there in order to melt the gold to put the gold plating on the statue and so probably it's around 1,984 degrees. So he's heating it up hotter than that, 2,000 degrees and beyond. But think of how pointless this would be in his anger he heats up the fire which is only going to incinerate these three individuals faster it's not going to cause them more torture and more pain his anger is absolutely pointless and we see this time and time again in the scriptures and we say it often at our church even though it is a curse word in our home we always say sin makes you stupid right sin just makes you stupid it makes you absolutely foolish and here we see this king being completely foolish. But in his folly, in his sin, he's making a way for God's glory to be even more clearly seen and demonstrated in the fact that this hottest of furnaces is not even going to singe their garments. So even his sin is under the sovereign control and hand of God. But here, as we're waiting between verse 19 and verse 20, There's a waiting period. Verse 19 ends, he commands that the furnace be heated up seven times hotter, and then he's going to command the valiant warriors to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're waiting for the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter. I don't know how long that takes. With my barbecue, it takes about 70 hours. I'm guessing it doesn't take that long here. We aren't told, we're not told how long, Uh, When it comes to the white space of scripture, I think interpretation by voting works, right? What do you guys think? 30 minutes? An hour? I don't know. The longer it gets, the more dramatic it gets. Let's say it's an hour. It takes an hour. And they're waiting. Just think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sitting there watching the king, watching all of the fire being dumped into the furnace, seeing the flames leap up past the entrance of the furnace and just wondering, did we make the right decision? They would have had time to say, you know what, let's, uh, let's talk to the king and figure this out because we don't want to go there. They would have had time to say, uh, we made a, a bad idea, a bad decision was made, we submit, we don't want to die. Alistair Begg says it this way. Think about it. It's just a one-off deal. What's the problem with just doing this once? You know, the statue's just a joke. It's not God. It doesn't have power. Why not? Just bow down. You're far from home. No one's going to know. No one's even asking you to actually renounce God. You don't have to say anything. Everyone else is doing it. No one's going to notice you joining in. The king, after all, has been very good to you. You owe him your job, your house. Yes, your conscience is nagging at you, but it'll be quieted down after a bit. Plus, if you bow down, you're not gonna die. And if you don't die, then you can be useful to God, and God wants us to be useful to him. So that's a good argument for just bowing down real fast. Get it done and get on living, and plus, that furnace is hot. And as they're sitting down, I envision them maybe tied up back to back, sitting on the ground, just leaning back and say, Shadrach how are you doing? Uh, I'm okay, Meshach, I'm a little, I'm a little scared. Abednego says, guys, I'm terrified. Did we make the right decision? Chatterak says, Yes, we did. Remember, we told Nebuchadnezzar, even if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, he will deliver us in the fire, we'll die and we'll be in his presence, and then Nebuchadnezzar can never touch us again. However long this period of time lasted, I imagine they communicated in such a way that bolstered their faith in the Lord standing tall, said, but even if, Nebuchadnezzar, even if, we'll never bow. So, verse 20, Nebuchadnezzar commands certain valiant warriors, valiant warriors. Why does Nebuchadnezzar have valiant warriors tie these three men up? Does he think that they're going to run away? Does he think that they're going to put up a fight? Again, sin just makes you stupid. And so he has them tied up. And he's going to cast them into this furnace of blazing fire. Verse 21 gives us their clothing so that we would see that it should just be burned off instantly. It's just going to be burned off immediately. Verse 22, it's so hot at the king's command being so urgent, at the furnace being made extremely hot. The flame is coming up out of the furnace. The furnace would probably have looked like, if you kind of think of a a train tunnel, with an old-fashioned glass milk bottle on top of it. A train tunnel with an old-fashioned glass milk bottle. That's kind of what it would have looked like. Doors on the bottom so you could get in and you could uh, manipulate what you needed to regarding the gold and things like that. And then a big spout on the top with scaffolding around it so that you could dump in firewood and and make it so that there was uh, oxygen that was going through, a big wind tunnel. That's probably what it would have looked like. So just picture this in your mind. You have a furnace. You have fire starting to come out all over the furnace. Probably the scaffolding is now lighting on fire. You have valiant men who are dying as they're placing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the opening, at the top, on the scaffolding, getting ready to throw them in. I mean, this is just a chaotic mess. And through it all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trust the Lord. And they are thrown into, verse 23, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Daniel's writing to prove that God is sovereign, and I believe that this section is answering a question, where is God in the midst of persecution? Where was God when they were being tied up? Where is God when the furnace is being heated seven times hotter? Where is God when they're thrown in? I think we're meant to ask that question because I think it's answered in the next section. Where is God? He is right next to them. Number two, God sovereignly provides his presence In the midst of trial, in the midst of fiery furnaces in our life, not only does God permit the persecution, does God allow it to happen? Does God allow the trials? But number two, God sovereignly provides his presence. This is verses 24 through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. My Bible says astounded. Some of your translations might say alarmed, caught off guard. This absolutely terrified him to see what was happening because he had no category in his mind for what was taking place. He's alarmed for five reasons, and we're given those five reasons in verse 25. He said, once he speaks to his high officials, was it not three men that we cast into the midst of the fire bound up? And they said, certainly, O king. He says, look, behold, look with me. He's bringing them over, and he's looking at that door, the entrance to the furnace, and he's saying, look with me. Number one, I see four men. So he's alarmed for five reasons. Number one, he sees four men instead of three. Number two, they're loosed. They were thrown in, tied up, but now they're loosed. Number three, they're walking around. They're just walking around. They're talking together. They're just hanging out. They're not lying down. They're not writhing in agony. They're not screaming in pain. They're walking around. Number four, none of them are harmed. They're in the midst, walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. Without harm. There's literally, it's they have not been injured. They've not been injured by the fire. Yes, they've also not been injured by being thrown in from the top down. They probably landed pretty hard, but they haven't been injured. They're just walking around. And then finally, number five, the fifth reason why he's alarmed is the identity of the fourth man. The appearance of the fourth man is like the sun of the gods. He's like a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have a category for the Trinity. doesn't have a category for angelology, the study of angels. He's going to say this is an angel when we get down to verse 28. I don't think that that's theologically accurate. In fact, there's really only two options for who this individual is. Either this is an angel, which Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, that's what I think it is, or this is Jesus. This is a Christophany. This is pre-incarnate Jesus showing up to be with his people. I would lean towards the latter. I think that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a Christophany. This is Jesus showing up to be with his people. And that absolutely astounds Nebuchadnezzar. And brothers and sisters, that absolutely astounds me. Think about what our God could have done. God could have said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to deliver you by letting you die. And it's going to be fast because Nebuchadnezzar in his folly and foolishness, he's heated up the furnace seven times hotter. So it's going to be fast and I'm going to bring you home. And they would have praised him. He could have protected them as they fell into the fire by maybe some force field around them. Think of some shield that would encapsulate them in such a way where the fire doesn't touch them. He could have protected them by sending an angel To guard them. To bring them together. To say the flame will not hurt you. But none of those work for our God. Our God says those are not personal enough. Those are not intimate enough. Those do not communicate my love enough. Those do not communicate my presence enough. I'm not going to send protection. I'm not going to send an angel. I'm going to send Jesus. And he'll be with you. He will always be with you. I think that God the Father sends Jesus here to remind us that he still sends Jesus now. The presence of our Savior through the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that in the midst of our fiery furnaces, we are not left to our own devices. We are not left to ourselves. We are not left alone. We have the presence of God himself residing in us and with us and around us we're never alone. You remember the book of Psalms, most of the book of Psalms had already been written by this point. So I'm guessing in my sanctified imagination, as they're tied up with their arms behind their back, as they're sitting on the ground waiting for that furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than usual, I'm guessing that they are reciting together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quieted waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Maybe they recited, Isaiah chapter 43, which had been written a hundred years earlier. Maybe they turned to one another and they said, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, that he formed you, O Israel, do not fear because I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers, though they will flow, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, You will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Maybe Meshach says, Abednego, we were promised this. When you walk through the fire, we knew it was going to happen, but we know that our God is going to be with us. I I believe they must have said to one another, God will be with us in the fire. And I bet they had no idea that he was going to show up like this. God will be with us in the fire. I'm guessing that they're thinking to protect us, in a way of not letting us lose our faith, of trusting him to the very end, of dying, trusting the Lord all the way through. He'll be with us. And then literally in the fire, he's with them. Rather than becoming objects of the king's wrath, the flames ushered them into an experience of divine favor. They had accepted the wrath of the king in order to remain steadfast, in loyalty to God, and because of that, now they get to experience the wonderful favor of God. So often, if we're honest, we just want out of the trial. Whatever the trial's going on, whatever's happening in our lives, we just want out. We pray, God, please get rid of the trial. Let the trial pass me by. Get it away from me. I don't want this anymore. But think of, if they had been praying that, get us out of this fiery furnace, keep us from it, protect us from it. We don't want to go into it. If they hadn't gone into it, they wouldn't have experienced the presence of Jesus. If we leave the trial, we leave the gracious presence of Christ to sustain us in the trial. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Beloved, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. You have to go through the furnace if you want to be close with the Lord. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean that we skip the fires. and Instead, obedience often means that we walk right into them and through them. But if we're honest and we could give testimony one to another of how many times in the midst of the trial, as we get into it and as we're in the middle of it, we would say, I don't want to be here anymore. But as we start to end that trial, and we begin to look back and we see God's hand and his presence, and we say, I wouldn't have changed this for anything. I wouldn't have changed that trial for anything in the world. Ask me on the front end, do you want to go through this trial? And we'd say, no thank you. Ask me on the back end and we would say that was the hardest thing I ever went through but because I went through it and God was with me I was able to understand him intimately to know him more closely than I've ever known him before. If we shun the trials we miss the blessings. Brothers and sisters when you walk into the fiery furnace rest assured with confidence Jesus is already there waiting for you. He's already there. He's promised, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, I'm always with you, I will never leave you. Lo, I am with you through the end of the age. Hebrews 13, five, I will never leave you or forsake you. John six, Jesus walks on the water to get to his disciples. Whatever it takes to be with you, I'll perform a miracle to walk on the waters to get to you. There is no barrier that can keep God from coming to the aid of his people. And my friends, the, the fourth man, He's still there. The fourth man is always there. The fourth man is there when the wife goes home to her empty house after burying her husband. The fourth man is there in her home. The fourth man is there. The fourth man is there when a mom finds out that her son's not gonna make it fourth man is there, by her side. The fourth man is there when the phone rings and you hear the words, it's cancer and there's nothing we can do. The fourth man is there. The fourth man is always there. He's never going to leave, leave you or forsake you. If you walk through the worst trial imaginable, the harshest affliction, the strongest persecution, but you have the fourth man, It is enough, and we will say, God be praised. The fourth man is with you now. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through. I know what some of you are going through, and I pray for you often. But I want to remind all of us this morning, the fourth man is there. He's with us. Whatever you're going through, he sees it. He knows it. He's ordained it. He's allowed it. He loves you, and he's using it to draw you closer to him. Verse 26, after Nebuchadnezzar's alarm, he comes near to the door of the furnace and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And they do, they obey. It's it's amazing that even here they wait in the fire for the command of the king. Even in the fire, they're still being humble and respectful. We'll wait until you command us to come out. And then they walk out. But I just wonder, I just wonder, as they heard Nebuchadnezzar's voice, come out, if one of them turned to the other and said, do we have to? You're with Jesus. Look around. You're in the midst of a furnace. There are flames in front of your face, on your hands. I Just think of what they must have been experiencing, and then to see Jesus show up. And then to hear, come out, I just, I have to imagine they looked and go, this is the most amazing moment of our lives. We can't forget this. Christ is with us. Do we have to leave? And I imagine that as that door is open, as they start to leave, whoever that last guy is, maybe it's Meshach, I think he walks through and I think he takes one last look. And he says, thank you. And he sees Jesus just vanish. Thank you for being with us. What an experience. There's nothing better than this experience. I mean, somebody back then, if they went to the moon, they said, I went to the moon. I walked on the moon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can still top that story. This is the best story that anyone had ever experienced. And so they walk out, verse 27, and everyone sees it. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gather around. They see that the fire had no effect, literally in Aramaic. The fire had no power over them. The fire had no power over their bodies. When God performs a miracle, it's clearly a miracle. There's no way that you can explain this other than God's sovereign supernatural hand miraculously protecting and providing for them. Their hair isn't singed. They have no effect on their body. The hair of their head's not singed, nor were their trousers damaged. So none of their clothing is damaged. They didn't even have the smell of fire on them. The smoke was afraid of them. The smoke couldn't even touch them. We've all been at campfires or things like that. You, you like that and after three seconds, you'll smell like smoke for a week, right? Like you cannot make the smoke leave you. You, you. The smoke starts coming at you, and you're like, I'm going to move my chair, and you move it around the, to the other side, and it just turns and starts growing after you on the other side. These three men, not a smell of smoke on them. We barbecued this last week. My barbecue is a mess, so when I light it, it's always one of those, like the ignition button doesn't work, so I have to use the little clicker thing, and I turn the ignition, and I just hope and pray that it doesn't blow up, and so I just kind of do this, and you hear like a little click, 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 and you just hope it, it stops and it lights, and it just keeps going, and you start to smell the gas, and you're just, please, Lord Jesus. And you press the button, and it, and the, the longer that it goes, the, the more powerful that thing is, and, and just that. Just, I always, like, I tell my kids, stay away, go back. And then when I click it, and it, I always look at my hands to see singed hairs, just, just from my barbecue. And these three individuals, not one hair is singed on their body. And it really happened. This really happened. There are witnesses. There are thousands of witnesses in verse 27 that are there to see that it actually happened. These are pagan idolaters that are looking on saying, yes, it actually happened. It's not a myth. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds and says, Blessed be your God because he's delivered you. He has been given the answer. The question that he asked in verse 15, what God can deliver you out of my hands? He has the answer. The most high God, Yahweh himself has delivered you because our God's a delivering God. Our God is a delivering God. He delivered his people from Egypt. He delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. He delivered them from the hands of Cyrus. He delivered us from the clutches of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. And God always delivers, always delivers. Usually, it doesn't happen physically. Sometimes it happens physically, but usually the deliverance that God gives us is a spiritual, supernatural deliverance to provide us grace, to sustain us through the trial, not remove us from it. Finally, number three, we have seen that God sovereignly allows persecution to happen. He sovereignly permits persecution. Number two, God always sovereignly provides his presence to be with us in that trial. Finally, number three, God's sovereignty prompts praise. God's sovereignty promotes praise. This is verse 28 through 30. After seeing what has just happened, Nebuchadnezzar responds and says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. Again, I don't think that that's theologically accurate, just uh, someone to protect them, and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. They violated the king's command. They yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And then he makes a decree, which I believe is purposefully ironic in the flow of the book of Daniel. The chapter opened with Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming a decree that everyone worship him And now it ends with him making a decree that everyone worship Yahweh. And closes with the same kind of declaration. But this time it's not worship me, it's worship God. How quickly fickle people change. This is exactly what he had said earlier. Do you remember when in in, uh, chapter two, when the dream was figured out? Nebuchadnezzar said, man, praise the God of Daniel, worship that God, trust that God, follow that God. There's nobody like that God. And then he went right back to worshiping Marduk. This is sobering. It's sobering because you can say these words. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is saved here. I think that he will get saved later, but I don't think he's saved here. And it's sobering to see that you can say words like this in verses 28 through 30 and not be saved. He's speaking truth that he himself doesn't believe because he hadn't gotten off the throne of his own life. He's not a true believer. He's not converted yet. He's going to have to sink way, way lower that we'll see in chapter four before he's ready to acknowledge that God and God alone is deserving of our worship. And that's instructive for us today because that tells us that a miracle does not produce faith. Nebuchadnezzar has just seen the most amazing miracle, but I don't think that he saved. We're not saved by miracles. How are we saved? We are saved by the hearing of the word of God. We're saved by hearing the word of God. So God in his grace allows this persecution to bring about praise. Think of how amazing the testimony of these three men must have been in the rest of Babylon. As they go out into Babylon, you remember there's going to be a third deportation. There's going to be All of Judah brought into Babylon. Nobody's left in Jerusalem. Everybody's brought over. And all of the Jewish people that are there in Babylon at that time are going to be freaking out, wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to be protected? Should we keep trusting Yahweh? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to say, hey, remember about the fire? Remember the the fourth man in the fire? This story is going to go throughout the entirety of Babylon. Terrified Jews entering Babylon will hear this story, And the three friends will continually say, God kept us safe in the fire. Remember the fire. Remember the fourth man. He's with us still. That's what we're called to do today, by the way. We're called to remind each other the fourth man is still there. He's protected us. He's kept us this far, and he's going to continue to keep us on into eternity. That's why we are here as the church gathered together to remind each other in sweet fellowship and accountability that God is our defense. He is our shield. He is our our bulwark. He is the one who protects us. He's always done it and he's gonna keep doing it. Look at how quickly in this chapter we've moved from persecution to protection to praise. That's the beauty of how our God works. This story Definitely shouldn't be used to promote a, a promised sense of physical deliverance from our foes. In fact, quite the opposite, because they are their own into the fire. It shows us that in the midst of the fire, God is with us. And that protection is a beautiful redounding to his praise experience that they go through. Verse 29, the decree is made, no one can speak out against God. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'll be torn limb from limb. Their house is reduced to a rubbish heap. There is no other God who can deliver like this. Then, verse 30, the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon, which again, I think is an ironic statement because it's God who's doing that. God's the one prospering these three men. And I think the king thinks he's the one doing it. And because of that, it's gonna lead us right into chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar is going to absolutely be humiliated because of his devastating pride. John Walvoord says, Taken as a whole, this chapter is a thrilling account of young men who remained true to God under severe trial. The common excuses for moral and spiritual compromise, especially the blaming of contemporary influences, are contradicted by the faithfulness of these three men. In spite of separation from parents and of the corrupting influences of the Babylonian religion, political pressure, and immorality, they did not waver in their hour of testing. Again, this isn't a blueprint for every single trial that we're going to go through because we need to remember that the the but-even-if clause, there are going to be moments when we are not delivered physically. That's why John Calvin says, The church of Jesus Christ has been so Constituted from the beginning, that death has always been the way to life and the cross the path to victory. That's what these three friends knew. And by the way, this is the last time we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is it. The next time that we see them, the next time that we hear from them, it'll be in heaven because they are removed from the account moving forward. I can't wait to meet them. I can't wait to talk to them. I can't wait to tell them what their testimony of God's faithfulness did in our church family. Dale Ralph Davis, wrapping up this chapter says, as believers today appropriate this account, they must remember that the miracle in Daniel, of Daniel's three friends is a token, not a blueprint. That is, it is a sample of the way Christ preserves his people, but not a guarantee of his dramatic deliverance in every case. Still, Christ's flock are strangely comforted here. Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the last moment that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through waters and rivers and fire and operating rooms and funerals and empty homes. The fourth man will always find his people. He always will, and we know that that's the case because God in his grace sent Jesus to endure the greatest of all fiery furnaces that there are. The reality of chapter three is so gospel proclaiming because it is us who deserve the fiery furnace. It is us who deserve it because of us not bowing down and worshiping God not a statue of him, and not in some external way, but genuinely loving him more than anything in this world. We are called, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to do that, not because God is some mean-spirited individual who needs our praise in order to be happy. He doesn't need us at all. We need him, and so his gracious command of saying, you need to praise me, Is God in his grace saying, I know how you will be most satisfied. And it's not by worshiping anything else, by finding your satisfaction in anything else. It is by finding your joy, your hope, your assurance, your confidence, your satisfaction in me alone. And we hear that and we say, not for me. And that's what sin is. Sin is turning from that reality and saying, I can be satisfied apart from you. Whether it's a fruit in the Garden of Eden, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's fame, whether it's whatever it is. It's us saying to God, you're good, but there's something greater. And we bow down to that thing and God says, you cannot be with me for all of eternity if you do that. In fact, he wouldn't like all of eternity. If you love anything other than God, heaven's going to be an awful place for you because heaven's all about God. So God says, make your choice. What will it be? And he graciously offers and he pleads and he woos and with winsome love, he's pleading with you to love him and to follow him. And if we finally say no, then we will be sent not to a temporal fiery furnace, but the the ultimate wrath of God in hell forever. And yet, God in his astounding kindness says, though you deserve that, I don't want that for you. And he sends Jesus And Jesus, not with three other friends in the fire, but alone, not even with his father, all by himself, our Savior walks into the fiery furnace of God's wrath and isn't protected from it at all. In fact, he feels every ounce of the wrath of his father as judge against our sin. But what Jesus does, he doesn't walk out of the fiery furnace of hell as it's still blazing behind him, unscathed. He's killed in that furnace. And then the furnace is killed when he rises from the dead. And then he comes to us and he says, I went to that fire so that you don't have to. Follow me, trust me, pursue me. Turn from sin, turn from idolatry, turn from worshiping anything else and trust in me. And that's all that you can do. That's all we need to do. There's no work that we can do to save ourselves. We cannot be good enough to get out of that furnace on our own. We cannot do any work to get to God on our own. No, it is God who does all of the work to get to us. And because he's done that, he's done the hardest thing. Then everything else for Jesus to do is an easy thing to do. That's why when he says, I'll never leave you, we go, "Mm, that sounds impossible. But he already did the hardest thing. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And so he says, it's an easy thing for me to do, to be with you forever, to never leave you, to never forsake you. The Christian life is about being delivered through the furnace, not from it, through those trials, not from the trials. Jesus went to the greatest of all furnaces so that in our little furnaces, in our little trials, we know that he loves us. He's not against us. So we can do this with joy. We can walk through these trials, these fiery furnaces, even persecution that is sure to come. We can do it with joy because we've been delivered from the greatest furnace by the loving, compassionate, and sovereign grace of our God. Brothers and sisters, The fourth man is always with you. And no matter where you go and no matter what you experience, there will always be another in the fire with you. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter. What grace to see on display our Savior not standing far off, and protecting from a distance, but saying, I will be with you in the fire. What kindness, what grace, so undeserved. Even in the obedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not deserve or earn this gracious gift. You would not have been any less good if you had allowed them to be incinerated by that fire. And yet in your kindness and your grace, You come to them just like you do to us. So Father, I pray that you would enable us to apply the reality of this amazing truth to our lives today. Holy Spirit, help us not only to know, not only to believe, but to feel, to be comforted, to enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding because the fourth man is there with us. Make us cling to these promises. Make us sense, even as we sing, that you are here in the midst of whatever we're going through. All to the praise of the glory of your amazing grace. We love you. And we pray in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.